HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an amazing woman in the hospitality industry who shares their stories of their challenges and successes in both work and in life. Today, my guest is Jill Donenfeld, an entrepreneur who slowly turned her enterprising college side hustle into a business over the last 13 years. The business, called Kilinistas, sends private chefs to cook healthy meals in your home. Who doesn't want to have that? I sort of want to have that all the time, just have you know, a packed fridge and someone cooking exactly what I want, or from... Um, from Jill's list of delicious-sounding recipes that are on the site. Um, along the way, she traveled, she wrote cookbooks, and she even started a Batarga business, which I think is the craziest escapade that I know about. Um, but before we dive in and we get to talk to Jill, I am really excited about a giveaway that I'm going to make on Speaking Broadly's Instagram next week. It's going to benefit Empower Through Flower, which is an initiative to inspire and encourage young girls across the country to transform their self-doubt into self-love, which is something we talk a lot about on Speaking Broadly. So I'm honored to be part of this program. I'm going to be giving away a 16-piece sous chef kit from Made In, which are beautifully made pots and pans. So I don't know, sous chef, chef, you can, as a chef, you're going to love the pans. So I want you to check out the, um, empower the Empower Through Flower and see all that they're doing for girls and check out these super cool pans that you can win if you follow On Speaking Broadly next week. Okay, Jill, that's, I'm happy to have you here. I'm that's so happy time. to be here, Dana. Thank you for having me. So you grew up in a really close-knit family in Ohio, and 
it seems like you cooked with your mom and your family eat dinner together every night, which is something when I was growing up, we also did. I can't say that inspired me in any way except to um, recognize that I want to have like more people around the table, more conversation, because I think ours was a little quiet. But the family member of yours that I am most fascinated by is your grandmother, Thelma. Because in reading the letter that she wrote to you um, for your bat mitzvah, she ends with this really beautiful phrase. And she says that she wants you to become a modern woman of valor. And I was like, that's so beautiful. Tell me about your grandma and how she might have inspired you to be doing what you're doing today. Did you live up to that? (laughs) Well, we'll see. It's a process. Um, God, I remember getting that letter um, for my bat mitzvah and reading it and not understanding what it meant. My, My mind was not ready to understand those words um, and really have a sense of what they could possibly mean. Um, But I do think that I have, whether consciously or unconsciously, ended up following in her footsteps. So tell me about her. She um, was a psychologist. Um, She went to Hunter College. And she was, you know, a a girl living in New York um, who had a strong strong desire to pursue knowledge and curiosity um, and growth through that. And she was about to marry some Swedish guy, and then my grandpa came to town um, on a buying trip. He had a, a women's department store in Dayton, Ohio, and she met him, and she thought, well, how exotic and romantic. Um, and, and they got married and moved to Ohio um, but she always had a, a practice um, and saw patients all through um, my father and my aunts and uncles' um, childhood. She, she was always working. Um, and she very much instilled a sense of, of work ethic and intellect and curiosity in all of her children um, that I think that my father has, has passed on to me. That's just so sweet. It was like that great typewriter type, you I know, know. It, it like looked like it was on onion skin. There's just something so... I know, and there's like typos in it, and then she writes things in. Yeah. And then, you know, she signs her name as just, um, it was so sweet. You know, and I found that letter um, when my parents moved from Cincinnati to Boulder, Colorado, and I, I was, you know, given the task of cleaning out my childhood bedroom, which was extremely traumatizing. <laughs> um, and I found that letter in the the closet in my bathroom and opened it up and just thought, wow, I mean, who is this woman? Um, yeah, I really always had a, a very close relationship with her. So um, you have an incredible work ethic. When we talk about growing this business as your side hustle, I mean, you were at Barnard College and you were doing babysitting and then you're like, um, I think I'm going to start cooking for some people. And then you had you had like four clients well, right I would away. say it was, um, it was, and continues to be always, um, always approached through a need, uh, a need of of the families and the clients. And yeah, I was I was babysitting when I was going to Barnard, and very very invested in the culinary industry. Um, every job that I had, besides the 
besides the looking after the kids was in culinary. It was um, working for Time Out, writing restaurant reviews, working for Karen Damasco at Kraft, um, working front of house at, at the Mermaid Inn, um, and just really sort of finding anything I possibly could get my get my hands on that had to do with food, um, and really actually focused my my major, which was urban studies, towards consumption, they say, um, in <laughs> academia, um, but how restaurants were affected by 9-11 and, and sort of all of that. And one of the families who I was babysitting for asked me, just, you know, very matter-of-factly, do you know where we could get a private chef? And I said, well, you could contact the culinary schools um, or you could just hire me to do it. And um, the mother of the children said, that's what the kids wanted. <laughs> I said, great. So I started, I started cooking for them once a week, um, just stocking the fridge, making um, healthy, delicious food. A lot of recipes coming from food and wine, actually. Love that. <laughs> um, yeah, of course. And, um, and then one thing sort of led to another, and there were a few other families that wanted that. Um, and so I started doing it for them. But you, and you can, it seems like you continued to, you know, cook for people who came your way. I mean, looking at some of the clips, assuming that they're true, you were cooking for like Neil Patrick Harris and the Kardashians. Yeah. Truth? Yes, that, that was the, that was the LA portion of the, of the evolution of the business. Tell me about that. Well, I want to back up a little bit. Um, after I, after I was working as a private chef myself in college, um, when I graduated, I really didn't know what to do. There was one job that I knew about, um, and that was editor-in-chief of Food and Wine, and that was taken. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really did not have the imagination of what what are the other jobs that I can have that you know a Barnard grad could could really cut their teeth in. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just I'll just make this side hustle into a business, um, and so you know incorporated it and and um, did did that stuff. And started marketing it. And PR was really my strong suit. Uh, I was living in the West Village at the time, and I, I wrote a letter that I printed out and I put in every single mailbox of every single brownstone. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> and, and started to get clients, started to get a little bit of press, um, always with the focus on what, what I could do for the chefs that would help them um, really have, maintain a, a good job and a flexible job in culinary and really what the clients wanted. So it was really always about, um, I guess they call it the product now, but for me it's, <laughs> I'm a tactile, experiential, personal, um, you know, focused person. So that's kind of just how I think about it. But I never really thought about um, the engine that could power something bigger. Um, so I, I ended up sort of weaving through, you know, this boutique, small business version um, of what the company is today. And that led me to, oh, I'm hearing that people could use this in California. Well, I want to move to California. All right, I'll, I'll move to Malibu, uh, get a tiny shack on the beach, and and expand to California, expand to L.A. Um, so I had I had moments of, of tremendous growth and atrophy as I sort of just followed the the natural progression of intuition and leads. I'm curious about the atrophy part because growth is pretty obvious. You're great at PR. Um, you're super persistent. You're super personable. So I get that part. Um, what, go on, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but what was the atrophy part like? What? How did? What parts of it shriveled and then you had to, you know, oh, reanimate? You know, 
like I said, this, you know, this started from just me doing it and it, and it sort of radiated out from there. And so I think I'm a pretty organized person. My brain is decently sized. Um, and I would grow it to like 10 chefs and, you know, 20, 25 clients. And there would be this, this block that I couldn't really get above. Um, and, and did not want to spend my time thinking about how can I get over the hurdle. It was just sort Is of... Is that why? It's like you just... That was not where you wanted to spend your energy. And you sort of accepted it like, this is pretty awesome, you know? Yeah. And, you know, to your... Um, speaking to your description of, of me, a very nice description, um, at the front end of the show, I have pursued very many things, you know? So when I came back from... I, I lived in Malibu for two years um, and grew the business in L.A. And by the way, if you're one person, you move to L.A. to grow a business, your New York business kind of suffers, right? So I ended up actually coming back um, to New York. Malibu is not really a place to get work done, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, and, and immediately had an opportunity to work with a, a hotel in southern India to help them write their cookbook. Um, I had lived in Madagascar. Um, and had ended up writing a cookbook there okay, in wait, 2007. I, right. I so want to know about that because of all the things that, you know, line up, like Barnard, you know, great idea in your dorm, start a business, <laughs> grow the business, move to Malibu, like that all makes sense. And then we trip across Madagascar. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you were there for five months and then you ended up writing this cookbook really niche So I'm just curious, like, what about Madagascar said to you from Ohio, living in New York and Malibu, I gotta go to Madagascar. Well, <laughs> I will tell you. Um, do you know the, the game Risk? Are you sure? It's the Not game well. of world domination. Yes. Um, I used to play Risk with my high school friends, and I would hide my armies in Madagascar. So I knew about it. Uh, it was on the map to, for me. Okay, that's my favorite thing <laughs> I think I've heard in this <laughs> container. Okay. Truth. This is, this is a truth serum container, so you get all the goods. Um, I, so I, I knew about it, and it oh, was wait. a French-speaking country. Can I ask you something? So, because I haven't really played Risk. Just knowing that you had troops in Madagascar, like, what do you need to know about Madagascar having your troops there? Like, do you learn stuff? No. You, okay. No, absolutely not. You just learn where it is on the map. Okay. Um... And then I knew that it was a French-speaking country from, you know, French, from the culture portion of the French classes. Um, and I loved where it was on the map. You know, it's, it's part of Africa, but it, it came off of India. Um, and so what could food possibly be like there with these, these influences of, of Indian Ocean um, and African continent? And I was very curious about that. You know, being a girl from Ohio you don't get a lot of exposure to that. You get the upside, which is eating dinner with your family every night. And I was very lucky to have both mom and dad cook and, and brothers who were always at the dinner table. Um, but you don't get the um, ethnic experiences, the, the sort of more global understanding of, of what's going on. Um, so I ended up writing this, this little booklet. Um, it's a book, but it's little. Um, in 2005 when I lived there and I self-published it in 2007 because to your point, very small market, <laughs> but I so sweetly get like $40 royalty checks every quarter. Okay. That's adorable. So, so cute. wait, so 
did you have any fear of giving up? Because you're to to go, you know, you had to have stopped something to pick up your life and move. No, no, I was no, I was very young. I did it as a independent study while I was at Barnard, um, and that was my thesis for the study was I'm going to write an ethnographic cookbook. Um, that will be my big, my big project. And I was young enough, um, I was 20, um, that I didn't realize how radical that was um, to go to Madagascar versus going to, say, Paris. Um, I just did not think about how, how radical it was. Now I think back on it and I think, wow, that girl was kind of cool. And so you just, you didn't, you didn't overthink it. And you, did you make a lot of plans? You got there and like, where did you go? And did you have friends? And what was that like? And did you collect recipes from, from mamas? From mamas? I got there and I had a homestay. Um, and you know, I guess because I learned from my mom, um, that was my approach was going to, was going to all different parts of the country um, and learning about what food is like um, at the coast and what food is like in the highlands um, to really get a good a good understanding of the the nation as a whole. Okay, so then when you went when you went to India and the hotel came calling, yes, exactly. You're like, so oh, fast well, forward. I've already been to Madagascar, no problem. Let's just do India. Exactly, and so that was that's an example of the the atrophy moment where. You know, I'd moved back to New York from Malibu, and my my business in in Malibu was okay. The business in New York was was significantly smaller, and I had this opportunity. And I thought, if I don't do this, it's going to be sort of annoying later. Um, so I might as well, you know, carpe diem, get on the plane, go go do that. Okay, but I have to believe it's more complex than that, right? Because you have this business that was sort of running, always running, was running. And that was a good thing. You invested a lot in it, right? Of course, of course. A, a, of yourself and some money. I think you started with 5000 bucks, which I just, yeah. I, I love that because it's That's now. all I had. It was a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, but what was it like to put that in hold? Well, that, it was always like a hold thing. You know, I never turned it off. Um, I couldn't turn it off, even though I wanted to a lot. Um, I love that it was such a good job for the chefs. I really loved what we were doing for every one of the clients. Um, it, it just brought such goodness um, and was such a help to, to both sides that I never... So wait, so you went to India, but the business kept running? Yes, exactly. The business was small. The business was boutique. You know, I had my laptop with me um, and I was living at the little hotel. And, you know, India is on a very different time zone um so when I was working in the kitchen learning recipes from from their their hotel chef and and teaching him how to use teaspoons and and cups um because of course he's a much better chef than that can do everything by you know smell and taste and 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 sight um you know then there would be downtime at night and I would shoot some emails off and make some arrangements um so you ran your business from India yeah and how did that feel? Did that? Did you feel like this is awesome? And you recommended to other people like try to do two things at once because you're doing two things at once. Like, was that satisfying in some way? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you can be one hundred percent 
at, at many things at once. Um, and I mean, that's so proven with what the business has become now, where I, I'm so 100% in it. Um, and there is, there is so much more growth and evolution and a, a larger vision. Um, and we've you know, created a really beautiful family of, of our employees and our chefs and our clients. It's um, maybe before, maybe it was against my nature initially to dive in wholeheartedly to one thing. Do you think there's was fear or just adventure? I don't think I was disciplined enough. Um, I've always been very curious and uh, always the type of person who would say yes to myriad opportunities. Um, a lot of things really interest me. I, I like learning. And I don't know that I had the discipline and maybe the confidence to say I'm going to put forward 100% effort towards one thing and see what that feels like and see what that turns into. Do you feel you're more disciplined now? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I have such an inspiring business partner now um, who has always been, I think, um, all in on any decision that she makes. And it is it is really the most admirable thing. And do you think that she became your role model in this? Like you watch someone be all in? Because really, definitely. The, all the work that you've done, um, you've done on your own up until yep. you found Tiana Tenet, if I pronounce her last name right, yep. um, who's your business partner. Yeah, and you know, we met in the very beginning of 2017, and we were put in touch through a friend of hers, and now she's become a friend of mine, but she really was a woman I met at a, at a networking dinner. Um, and I had announced at the dinner that I wanted to close my business and I wanted to move back to Malibu and open a restaurant. So if anyone had any information about that, you know, talk to me. And um, this, this woman, her name's Rachel Wexler. She's awesome. She just started a company called Black Iris. Um, what does Black Iris do? It's beautiful women's clothing. Okay, just had to ask. Yeah, check it out. It's nice. Um, but she came up to me after the dinner and she said... I want to put you in touch with my friend Tiana. She's uh, working at J.P. Morgan now, but she's, I think she wants to open a restaurant in Amagansett. And so we were put together to talk about our uh, seasonal market restaurant ideas. And we got together and we both said, yeah, a restaurant's a pretty bad idea. Yeah, okay, I agree. Yeah, a restaurant in a seasonal market is like horrible. Yeah, okay, cool, I agree. And then she said, you know, but can you tell me a little bit more about your business and what you're doing. Um, and I, you know, talked about it in the way that I talked about it, which was very client focused and chef focused and culinary focused. And she saw an immediate, she saw the need immediately. Um, I think after working in the finance industry, she, she, you know, firsthand saw tons of women who were just, you know, tasked with raising a family as well as having uh, very serious and all time-consuming careers. Um, and she believed in it immediately, um, which, so I, was, which was overwhelming. I want to go back to that moment at that dinner because you said it was a networking dinner. Yeah. So uh, tell me about that because I'm always interested in how people, you know, find the thing that makes their business work. Yep. And... Lots of people go to networking dinners, yep. and you asked for the 
opposite. opposite. Yeah, I know. And you got, well, whatever, you asked for one thing and got its yeah. opposite. Yeah. Do you think, why do you think it worked out that way? And what was the purpose of that networking dinner? And do you believe in networking dinners? Well, I was invited to a six-person dinner at, at someone's apartment. And then, and I'd been in, in L.A. for three weeks looking after a friend's dog. And was, and was coming back. I was on the plane coming back. When I landed, I got an email saying, actually, it's 12 people and actually it's at Gemma. And I thought, oh, God, this is like a thing. Oh, I don't know if I have the energy. I just landed. But I talked to my mom on the phone, and she said, eh, just go. I said, I really just want to order a pizza. And she was like, don't, Jill, don't do that. Just go. Um, so I got there, and it was super bright women, just really, really um, brilliant women from all industries. Um, and I was very fortunate to be put in that room because it was all women who I, I didn't know um, from a, just a very different segment of New York City life. And it's funny when you say, you know, the thing that got you to, you know, the moment that was transformative. I knew that girl from a guy I had been in touch with to get him into Soho House through a woman I had met through a girl I had met in L.A. who I met from, you know, someone I knew in, in New York. Like it's, you know, you, the, the butterfly effect of all of that stuff. You really can go tangled. Back forever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's your lesson do you feel from that dinner and from that tangle you just described? Well, I think that if you... I think if you are open to listening for opportunities, uh, they present themselves. And that takes an element of courage um, because you never really know how something is going to turn out. But it's funny because you actually, you came with a really bold statement. I did. Yeah, I did. I really, really wanted to be done with it. I didn't, I wasn't um, growing anymore from how... I was doing things. I just I wasn't personally growing, and and that is depressing to me. Uh, and just it just didn't feel like I was moving in any uh, in any direction. Um, and so I, I think I was sort of floundering a little bit. And I thought, well, I, I really liked when I lived in Malibu, so I want to move back there. Well, what are the things I can do there? I guess I could be a waitress at Nobu. Uh, I could do that. I have those skills. I've done that before. I don't think my parents will be proud, and I think that I'll be uh, amused with this for four months, and then I'll be very bored. So what's the other thing I can do? Oh, there's I know that there's that one vacant building in Malibu. I could start a restaurant. Um, there was the Granita Space, which is an old Wolfgang Puck uh, restaurant from the 90s. So I'm curious your parents' role, because you talked about, you know, you called your mom. Yeah. Like, do they have universal advice that you're like, I live by that every day? My parents... Um, are are very trusting in their children. Um, I think that they worked very hard to empower us to have our own ideas and make our own decisions um, and to not take anything too seriously, to, to experiment with everything. Um, maybe I should have gotten a little more guidance from my parents. I don't know. <laughs> um, but we, I have two brothers, and we are all rather individual um, from each other and just sort of generally. Um, and I think that that's what happens when you have parents who who encourage their children to flourish sort of on their own time and their own terms. Did you ever test them? Like, did, did you ever do something crazy? Oh, my God. I mean... What's the craziest yeah, thing you did? Of course. 
You want to hear the worst thing I ever did? Of course did? I do. I spit in my mother's face. Ooh. Oh, my God. Oh, the um, shame. She wouldn't let me go to an after-cast party for a school play I was in, and that was social suicide, you know? So it, I really felt it warranted at that at the time. <laughs> very, very oh, my God, embarrassing. Truth serum, see? Yes, exactly. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about that first year in business and the um, your health scare that, you know, made you think really hard about what you're doing, how much you could give to any business, and how to make everybody thrive. So we'll be back in a minute. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. This is Dana Cowan, and I have with me today Jill Donenfeld from Culinistas. So when you, the first year you and um, Tiana worked together, you had a breast cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, um, I met I met T in January of 2017, and like I said, the the attraction was immediate. Um, we are really the sort of yin and yang partnership. Um, and she, I you know, I I could say, in order for us to have a, a great product, the chefs need to feel ownership over what they're doing, and they need to have you know consistent work, and they need to sort of have the logistics and the communication worked out. Um, and our clients need, you know, reliable chefs and healthy food and, and really people who understand service. And Tiana, you know, could look back and say, oh, well, we need, you know, we need tech for logistics. Um, let's, let's think about that. And we need, um, we need innovative recipes um, so that we can have a consistent product um, but also give chefs, you know, ownership, ownership and flexibility. Um, and we need scale for consistency. Um, and that was the, really the partner I needed. So she came in as a co-founder in, two, in 2017. So how hard was that, right? Because you, you founded it and was called Dishes Dish? Oh, the very beginning. What kind of name was that? Well, my, my high, someone, someone I had a crush on in high school called me a dish once. No, they did not. Um, they said, like you're, you're, you're such a dish. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I guess um, you liked that name. I was, I was such a, well, I had a crush on him, you know, and it was high school. It was a big deal. Um, so it was the dishes dish and then, um, and then switched to the colonistas a couple of years in. Um, and what, what was it like? I was so, um, flattered and honored that someone as, as smart as Tiana saw what I was doing and saw, saw, saw what I was delivering, but saw how we could, how we could do it very differently and saw how we could build it. But uh, flattery doesn't always make the best business decisions, right? Because that puts you... Um, <laughs> that's true. Right. right that's in, a, true. in a position of like, oh, I'm so honored you're taking me seriously, which could be like, sure, so take my half my company. Um, and you developed this idea and you, um, and you nurtured it, even though it atrophied a little bit and you had like a great life simultaneously. Um, but what do you... Well, I think, for, I think the key with us is that there is a mutual respect and admiration for what we both bring to the table, which are very different things. Maybe that maybe that's right, more but the, than flattery is what I, I mean. mean is. I think the question is like so you felt you actually felt, as I'm not sure many founders would, I you felt okay saying you're gonna bring such a significant thing to this company you know what, I thought, this is cool, and let's try it. Uh-huh. Um, remember, I, I, was, I really didn't want to be doing it anymore, and I didn't, I didn't want to think through the things that, that we've thought through now. I didn't want to do that alone. It wasn't interesting to me. Um, and when she showed interest, I thought, this is an interesting you know, moment, and why not dive in? If, if I don't go for this, it's going to be out of fear um, and I should walk towards the fear and see what it's like. So talk about walking towards the fear because we started beginning to talk about the breast cancer diagnosis. So you had met this person, you made a a partnership and um, yeah. And we went through the first year, you know, I mean, we were like newlyweds, right? Not having not known each other very well. and the first year of any business, I think, is very intense. Um, for this one, it, it definitely followed suit, um, hiring a team and, and, and growing um, structure, which was not something that I had any experience doing, um, and, and getting to know, you know how Tiana works and, and actually getting to know how I work, which I had never really thought of, um, but seeing how someone else works, you know, they really hold a mirror to you. So we're really just finding a rhythm, I think, um, of understanding each other and really getting to utilize one another in, in the best way possible. Um, and I went to a doctor for sort of a random thing and on the way out said, oh, by the way, can you do a breast check? I thought I felt a lump on my right boob. And he said, oh, yeah, sure. So he did the check, and he said, I don't feel anything on your right, um, but here, feel this little spot on your left. And he you know, put my hand there, and he said, do you feel that? And I said, no. And he said, yeah, it's just like a little thing. Um, I'm just going to like order you a mammogram, and you, know, you should just get it. And I thought, okay. Um, oh, and by the way, since Tiana and I became partners, I have health insurance, which is just so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's right? great. It's, yeah, that's not, a big not difference. something, that's a huge difference. Yeah. Um, 
And so I, I got the mammogram and the doctor came in and said, you know, there's the lump looks a little weird, but there's also two areas, one on either side that are just these like little calcified spots. So we want to bio- biopsy them. Um, so then over the next couple of weeks, uh, he did the biopsies and the lump came back as atypia, um, and the, but the two calcif- calcified areas came back as DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ. And, and some people call it stage zero. Um, it's, it's a cancer that's contained within your milk ducts. So it has not become an invasive cancer uh, quite yet. And um, that, you know, that really threw me. Um, I, of course, then had genetic testing and, and found out that I was, um, that I, I have a mutated BRCA2 gene. I was wondering whether um, you had, because I have a BRCA2 gene, which is how, I mean, I didn't know that until after I was diagnosed sure, with cancer. Course. But um, yeah, those darn BRCA2 genes. I know. And, um, you know, it's it sort of, it becomes very real to you. Wow, I'm 34. Um, I was 33 at the time. 33, and I've got this, you know, cancer on both sides, and it's contained within the the ducts. But uh, I got. A, I hope I have, have a long life ahead of me, and you know, that gives cancer a long time to to grow and spread and take over. Um, so I, you know, made the decision to. Uh, have a double mastectomy and was there anyone who didn't support that decision because there's a lot of opinions about that well the the fact finding process um, of this which was very intense I I found out I had the DCIS on February 9th and then my surgery was March 22nd Um, so it was very very intense um, and and concentrated Um, and I I spoke to about seven breast surgeons and about that number of plastic surgeons as well uh, to really understand uh, what it meant to have cancer, have breast cancer. Um, I I had never thought about that, of course, you know, in my life before. Um, No, I think that, I think everyone ultimately, after they found out that I carried this mutation, um, was very supportive of it. And, And thank God that I did that because when they did the pathology on all of the tissue that they removed, they found one millimeter of invasive cancer. And um, what they say is if you have less than two millimeters of invasive, they they say it's not, you know, it's not really necessary to do radiation or chemotherapy. Um, but if you have over two millimeters, then they recommend it. So I, I had my boobs until the last moment uh, before they could kill me. <laughs> um. It's good that your boobs didn't, you know, do you, the end. didn't do yeah. you in. <laughs> Did it make you feel differently about the business you were about to embark on? Like, was this a moment that you had? Yeah, it felt sort of so. Um, it felt so unfair. It just, it felt so unfair. You know, um, coming into a partnership, you really want to prove to your partner um, that. You know you're, that you're in it. You're doing it together. You're focused. You're you're growing. You're like, you're the team. You know, and um, Tiana and I really had that, and 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 then this happened, and my attention necessarily needed to be split in order to save my life, and it just felt unfair. It felt like, you know, if I focused on on figuring out my health stuff 
then I was going to be, you know, failing the business. Um, and if I focused on the business, then I might die, you know. I, I wouldn't be able to focus on the business for too long, potentially. Um, you know, and it goes back to what we were saying of I really don't know if I can do two things 100% at the same time. Um, I don't know if anyone can. And about the business itself, did it make you think, I really want to, when this is cleared up, I want to double down because it shows me something that I'm really excited about? Or it didn't clearly make you say, actually, I'd rather travel. But I'm wondering what the existential thoughts were about life versus work when you had just entered into that partnership? Like, did it have, create any existential thoughts? Um, well, I can tell you that uh, when you have the stress of figuring out how to stay alive, the stress of other things is minimized. Um, and that is a, a massive blessing. Um, I think that I was able to be very shrewd and focused on the business when I could be without the noise of the stress that every day of business and the highs and the lows and the, you know, oh, this employee is great and oh, this employee we're having problems with and, you know, look, we're trying to get press in this thing and why isn't this person paying attention to us? All that sort of thing, all that sort of um, noise, you know, really just became, okay, what can I do today that's going to be good for the business and that's going to push the business forward and that's going to be supportive to Tiana and our team? Um, because I don't have time for that noise right now. I've got a, a lot of other noise. So when you traded out noise, um, but then you were healed, did you find it possible to continue to eliminate the noise that actually you realized wasn't important or productive? I um, practice that every day. Um, you know, not, How do you do uh, that? Not perfect. Um, no, I mean, I think when you have an experience like this in which you, you have to just get yourself into fight mode, um, that, is, uh, that is learning that penetrates you at a cellular level. Um, and I don't think it leaves you. And you're lucky in that you had some time to, you know, balance your time with Tiana, right? You had figured out a good way to work together. Yeah. I'm curious because that partnership seems so strong. Do you have advice for people who are looking for partners? Cause I, for one, for example, I'm so on your side, like happy to do all the creative and so never interested yeah, yeah, in doing yeah. the other side. But finding that finding that perfect perfect person, as you did, um, is there a checklist in your mind? Well, I think that when you, um, I think that what having a partner does, what it's done for me, is um, has forced me to to be more self-possessed and dig deeper into, I'm an intuitive person, so dig deeper into my intuitions um, because I know that I have that, the balance of the, of the other side, of the pragmatist. Um, Tell me about digging deeper into the intuitions. Like, what does that mean and what do you find down there and how do you get there? <sighs> oh, gosh. 
Well, I think you you have to tr- you have to trust your gut. You know, that's what intuition is. Is but how do you um, find it? Like, actually, trust your gut is one of the my. I have a whole series of phrases that I hate. Oh, um, oops! No, I blew I mean, it. Dana, no, no, I blew it. No, no. <laughs> I, but I, but I hate it only because I don't. I believe it's true. I believe you should trust your gut. But I think that you can only trust it if you can find it. You know, yeah, like there's no map to the gut, oh, right? So true. And you have mm-hmm. to like pull off all the screens that are blocking it. And so, trust your gut is great for people who have access. But I'm always curious, like how people. You know how you, you get there. How you get there, because that I feel like is actually the key to so many people's future. I agree with you so much, and I just don't know if I have an answer. But so, I, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you that there has not yet been a how-to manual to getting to the gut. Right. Like I want the directions. Yeah. You know, like a recipe. But maybe it doesn't work like that. Maybe that's the special stuff is that, you know, you have to find your own music and nobody can write that for you. Yeah, they can't write it, but can't they, you know, like put the recipes are so great. You follow the directions and at the end, you know, you've got something I know, you know, it's true, but, you know, can I tell you how our recipes work with the Colonistas? Um, We really work to empower our chefs to be creative and and trade on their their own lineage as chefs um, and really lean on that. So we do not have um, measurements or even really uh, cooking techniques. Our recipes look more like a sports bracket. Um, They're really a roadmap. And, you know, it'll start with uh, broccoli, EVOO, salt and pepper, urfa, roast, you know, and then there'll be another bracket of, of you know, making making a broccoli pesto that's going to go over the roasted broccoli. And it'll say, you know, broccoli, toasted pine nuts, parmesan, basil, um, blend, and then it'll say mix. And we haven't said to, you know, blanch the broccoli first, um, or sort of what embellishments to put on. And we, we do that so that chefs can follow what their, what, what their learning has been and what their feeling is around how they want to best make that dish. For us, every time a chef cooks one of our dishes, it's different. It's a different chef. It's a different family whose needs they're considering, whether it's you know, is a 10-year-old going to have this broccoli? Um, or is this going to be something that a mother takes to lunch? Um, and it's a totally unique kitchen. You know, maybe the maybe the oven's broken. So, okay, I think your point to get back to the, the gut, you're telling the chefs to trust their gut, and I think you're telling me that I need a bracket system. Would I actually think a bracket <laughs> system to figure out, like, where you're going is not a, you know, it's not a bad idea. So uh, at the end of the show, I always ask people to, to pay it forward. Someone who uh, you admire in the world of hospitality um and why oh I love that oh I love that um well I could I could give a shout out to my first job which was at a a coffee shop in Cincinnati um called Coffee Emporium and it was a little Victorian house um on at the end of my block that was um that it, it still exists um owned by a family, owned by a couple, Tony and Eileen. Um, and I walked in there one day and talked to Eileen about a job when I was 14. And she, 
At that point, they didn't have any employees. It was just the two of them. Um, and she, I think, looked at me and thought, oh, an enterprising girl from the neighborhood, sure, why not? Um, and gave me my first job. And she and her husband have gone on to build a little coffee empire in Cincinnati. Um, and they have a couple of locations, and they do a big catering business, and they built it from such the tiniest, tiniest um, you know, little acorn that has just become you know, a massive tree. Um, and my claim to fame there was that I, I came up with a, a drink that's called the Orange Julius, like an Orange Julius um, from the mall, if you can remember back to those days. Um, but it was soy milk, orange juice, and vanilla blended over ice. And it's still on the menu. Isn't oh, I love yeah. that. That is wonderful to feel like you made a, a lasting impression. Yes. <laughs> my legacy in Cincinnati lives on. <laughs> And your legacy and so many people's kitchens live on as well. Well, I wanted to thank you so much, Jill, for joining me on Speaking Broadly. If people want to find the Colonistas, where should they find them? Thecolonistas.com um, or Instagram at thecolonistas. And you yourself? Jay Donenfeld is my, is my Insta. If you want to follow, it's like surfing pics. <laughs> you're kind of, your travels are amazing. I realize I didn't ask you about the Batarga. Okay, so bonus extra points. Batarga on your fire escape like why oh yeah that was such a random tangent wasn't it, <laughs> it was um a tangent of life if you can have those um i i met someone who said oh i've always wanted to um i really want to make this batarga business and i was like cool let's do it and you i tell was everybody like, what the what batarga, batarga is. is um salted dried Row from a gray mullet fish, um, and you get you find those fish in the Mediterranean. You also find them um, in Florida, and so I met this fellow, and um, and he showed me how to make his Tunisian grandmother's batarga, and we sort of endeavored in this year of making like a hundred pounds of batarga at a time in this like smoked salmon processing facility in Brooklyn. Um, you, we'd go in there on Friday night after they'd finished um, and we would like slack everything out and then process a hundred pounds at a time. And we'd like leave totally bleary eyed and whacked out on Sunday morning just when like all the Haitians were getting in to start, um, to start up like the slicing machines. Um, and we ended up selling to Italy um, and a few chefs who I really respect and admired, um, Justin Smiley and Anita Lowe and, and Paul Liebrandt. Um, who just, so those of you who don't know, those are very fancy chefs. So, yeah, it was um, an honor. Justin Smiley has uh, Upland, Anita Lowe had Anissa, which she's since closed. She's one of the greatest chefs um, in the country. And who was the last? And Paul Liebrandt, and who's Paul just Liebrandt a legend in his own right. A definite legend. Um, and you know what? After a year of doing the business, I realized that I, I don't want to be, I really don't want to smell like fish every weekend. Um, so my business partner in that endeavor um, sort of continued down, the, down that road, and I went back to the, the private chef life. That's Dana, quite... I still make batarga. Now I just make it on my fire escape. And I make like four pieces at a time, and I just gift to friends. So um, when I get a new a new shipment up in from from Florida, I will definitely uh, drop some off for you. That's a great benefit of doing this show. People give me things like batarga. Um, okay, that's so such an interesting thing to 
give up a piece of your life to. Did it feel like, did it enhance your life at the time? Oh, it was so fun. I mean, it was so fun to learn how to do this um, super esoteric thing that um, I've always been a big flirt with chefs. Um, and, and the chefs thought it was real cool. So <laughs> I liked that aspect. You really enjoy the esoteric. So many people don't. And uh, Okay, so... That was just an extra bonus because I had to know about the batarga because when I was at Food and Wine, um, Jill dropped off some batarga and it was and it was really good. It was a really memorable for me. So um, this is F- you can find me at FW Scout on Instagram and uh, Twitter, and you can also find me at Speaking Broadly. And as I said at the beginning of the show, on at Speaking Broadly, there's an awesome, incredible giveaway of a nine-piece set of Made in. Um, cookware, and it is to raise awareness for Empower Through Flower, and you can find out more about this great organization that helps girls find their voice and get over self-doubt at empowertheflower.com. So um, thank you today for my engineer, Kevin, and to Nina, who's here as my co-producer, and we'll be back next week. Have a great week. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.